Hi, everybody, and welcome to John Hennigan's Old Time Radio Show. So glad you could join us. It's going to be really terrific. we got some really wacky, zany old records for you tonight. Boy, oh boy. It's, it's going to be a swell time. <laughs> Okay, this is John Hennigan. We're here on the Old Time Radio Show. It's September 29th, 2016. We are here uh, with Don Hill, the great record researcher and collector, and our mutual friend Tony Byer. Hello, everybody. Tony Byers. Hello. Tony Byers, sorry. <laughs> and uh, so, Don, you were just telling us. Well, we're going to listen to the song by Attila the Hun on the ARC label called the Graf Zeppelin. Okay. And it's one of my favorite calypsos. Uh, Attila was not known as a great singer, but a great composer of these songs that were sung in arenas called Calypso Tents, which John Cowley of England has just determined were started in the mid 1950s, they weren't really started in the mid-1950s, but they were separated from carnival bands in the 1950s. 1920s, I'm trying to say here. I don't know why I said the 50s. But this is one of the songs that was recorded in New York in probably his first trip with the Roaring Lion to New York. I never met Attila. He died before I got to Trinidad, but I did meet Lyon and got to know him very well, and he called me quite frequently, and I called him frequently, too, back in Trinidad from upstate New York. At any rate, Attila is singing one of his more famous songs about the German Zeppelin, Blimp, the Graf Zeppelin, which took a South American trip in... uh, you have it. No, I have it here. In 1930, and I have a first day of issue. The The idea of the Zeppelin was to um, advertise this is a form of luxury travel, but also in terms of having first day of issue mail. So they carried a lot of mail, and I have a first day of issue mail envelope from the Zeppelin. Uh, which has all kinds of postmarks on it, but yeah, it's, it's, incredible. it's from the Zeppelin's trip to South America and the Caribbean, all the way down to Rio, and they went by Trinidad, and this song we're going to hear is Datella's uh, version of the time the Graf Zeppelin went by Trinidad on its way to Lakehurst or from Lakehurst. I'm not quite sure which direction it was going at the time. So he would have been looking up and, and saw that and he saw inspired it. him to yeah, That's write right, the song, to write yeah. the song, exactly. And this was recorded... Uh, it was recorded in New York in, uh, I believe, 1934. These guys were called the 
the West Indian Rhythm Boys, I huh. think, on uh, Rudy Valley's Fleischmann Sauer radio broadcast, which oh, really? was one yeah. of the biggest radio broadcasts in the United States in the early 30s. And they were on Rudy Valley's show. I think during that first trip, and they were also on other radio broadcasts, they broadcast back to Trinidad at one point in the 30s. And they were heard spottily in a few places in Trinidad. And uh, this is what generated the first Calypso boom in the United States mm -hmm. in the 1930s. Uh, Ray Funk from Alaska and uh, Michael Eldridge are uh, writing about that. And uh, so this is. Attila and Lion recorded for ARC. They also recorded for DECA. DECA had a long line of calypsos that many people have and are familiar with. The harder to come by records are the ARCs, which would be Perfect, uh, Romeo, and other labels. Melatone. Melatone. Yeah. Brunswick eventually was part of ARC. And uh, this is one of those. My particular copy is a Perfect. And it's uh, in very good condition. It's yeah, it looks the very shiny from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, do you want to hear the record? Yeah, now? let's give it a spin. One Sunday morning, I chance to hear a rumbling and a tumbling in the atmosphere. One Sunday morning, I chance to hear a rumbling and a tumbling in the atmosphere. I ran to share. People were flocking everywhere, gesticulating and gazing and pointing in the air. Cause he grabbed the plane which I had come to pay a visit to Trinidad. Zeppelin contemplatively and marveled at man's ingenuity. The whirring of the engines were all I heard as it floated in the air like some giant bird. And in between, as in my dear Japan, the pilot and the sailors and the passengers the scene, they were waving little flags which they had peril in their visit to How wonderful the work of man can be To see that huge objects in the air Maintaining perfect equilibrium in the atmosphere Wonderfully, beautifully, gloriously Decidedly defying all the laws of gravity Was the grab Zeppelin which I had Come to pay a visit to Trinidad As I gazed at the Zeppelin, something touched me hand. I turned and saw an old decrepit coolie man. He 
said to me, pointing at his airplane, Master, can you tell him what is the pain he feels to bala? For me to understand at all, he no have nothing holy him up there until he never falls. He was thinking of his airplane with Tara, come to pay a visit to Trinidad. That was really great. I have to say, I don't know this music that well, but uh, just hearing that record, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of, you know, early American dance band music. And uh, Well, they were very much influenced by in that. Influenced uh, by Western dance music? Yeah, I think that has Gerald Clark's orchestra. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, really? That's really great. But Clark... Um, had been interviewed by Errol Hill, who was a dramatist from Trinidad. No relation to me, unfortunately. I wish he was. <laughs> but uh, he had interviewed... No, he interviewed Houdini. I don't think anybody interviewed... Uh, there might be a few short things that John Calley in England has turned up of interviews with uh, Gerald Clark. I met Gerald Clark when I was working at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and I met him when he was living with his niece in his brownstone in Brooklyn and uh, uh, he had had a stroke and couldn't talk but it seemed like he could understand that we were talking about him. She lent me his record collection and his scrapbook and I copied it all and a bunch of us have the, those copies of what he did and he was frequently mentioned in Walter Winchell's column in New York and uh, other columns as well and he played sometimes with Latin groups in the 1930s huh. and this was I saw him in uh, the 1970s and uh, so it's Clark did most of the accompanying for the singers coming up from Trinidad in the 1930s or F Gregor Felix who was from Puerto Rico he uh, is crazy cats also uh, uh, were recorded with these singers let's put that back in the other room so so Don uh, so s you were telling me that you know you, you we just met, but as I was setting up, you were telling me you, you traveled uh, a lot, your family, uh, when you were young. Right. How, how did you end up in uh, places like Trinidad? How did you first, you know, get into this, this music? I mean, th this well, music I already was quite old by the time you first yeah, heard it. Yeah, but it was, uh, there was a big calypso craze in the late 1950s. I've written about it, Ray Funk. Alaska has written about it and he and uh, other people are writing uh, and uh, are writing a book about the Calypso craze huh. and uh, the big Calypso craze of 1957 was uh, spearheaded by Harry Belafonte who never 
deemed himself as a calypso singer, more right. as a general artist, and he was great. And a lot of myself and a lot of kids my age in high school and in college liked Belafonte quite a lot, and I surely did and still do. Oh. And uh, uh, so that's what got me interested in calypso was the Belafonte recordings. I remember I went over to a friend's house and listened to Belafonte's. Matilda album and other albums, uh, Ed Farmer, and uh, was that guy's name of a house in San Pedro, California. I lived in Southern California at the time. And uh, I went to the library and got records out of the library on LP that were copies of these original 78s. Oh. And I love those people like Attila and the Roaring Lion and the Growling Tiger and others. So that was how you first heard That's it? That's how I first heard it and yeah. went to the library and checked out the LPs and listened to them a lot yeah, and bought some of them. And uh, I wanted to go to Trinidad most of my life and I eventually made it there when I went to, as an anthropology graduate student, I lived in a nearby island, part of Grenada called Cariacu. I lived there for two years, and then I lived in Trinidad for one year in the early 70s, 1970s. And uh, that's where I got to rekindle my interest in this kind of music, Calypso. It had changed somewhat since then, but it was still great music. I was going to ask you if it, how, how similar it was to what we just listened to. It was looking back now after the Soka and hip-hop and reggae revolutions. Um, it's the music of the 50s was fairly similar to the music of the 30s that I listened to. Roaring Lion was one of the singers who had um, introduced changes and popularized Calypso outside of Trinidad. And uh, uh, that style of music was still going on in the 50s and into the 60s and early 70s. But then soca, calypso as a kind of a dance party music became more popular. Hmm. And my interest is in more of the calypso before that, right, era right. when the lyrics were big. Well, that record he played had great lyrics, right? He was really yeah. describing what you said. And in detail about him seeing right. this uh, Zeppelin. Very interesting. Well, the next record is also Calypso called Trinidad Paseo by Banda Mixta Lovey. This is Lovey's band, George oh. Bailey. And he came to New York and recorded in, gee, when did he first record? It was, he recorded in, um, Trinidad and New York, and I get the dates mixed up now, but I think it was 1910. Hmm. He's the first person to record consistently black vernacular of music from an English-speaking country. Oh, cool. And he's on the list. Dick Spotswood helped get him on the list, the first list of uh, selected titles in the Library of Congress. And uh, so here's 
one of the 1914 recordings. Could you describe though? We had a conversation no, the, before about like the whole uh, Calypso craze in the the U.S. of the 1920s, which is kind of more of the yeah. vaudevillian. Uh, yeah. What like maybe people that aren't as familiar, what's like kind of you know Sam Manning. Well, in the 1920s, Calypso was still pretty much confined to the West Indian community in New York area, right. particularly in Harlem and in Hell's Kitchen, and in the 1920s. Uh, 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 that music played before, after films. Uh, in the 1930s, at places like at the Apollo and other places, a good chunk of the Harlem Renaissance, this burgeoning of African American culture in New York area, occurred because of this West Indian input. It's kind of under represented in the literature, but uh, a lot of the people that popularized black culture in the United States came from the West Indies, from the English-speaking West Indies, and one of them was Gerald Clark, the band leader that we spoke about earlier, and uh, Lionel Belasco, I never was able to meet him, but I met his son, Bert Belasco, and talked to him. I never recorded an interview with him, but I talked and interviewed him a couple of times, and he lent me his records of his father. Oh, cool. And uh, uh, Lionel Belasco was the first West Indian, Trinidadian, to extensively copyright West Indian material, some of which he wrote, but like everybody in those days, they copyrighted everything that uh, was traditional and so on, and Belasco right, did course. that. One of Belasco's melodies that he had copyrighted was, uh, or at least he had published, was Elani Passe, which was the original version of Rum and Coca-Cola, huh. the, the music. The lyrics were written by Lord Invader, the original lyrics. They were adapted and modified by uh, three people mostly Maury Amsterdam, the American comedian who plagiarized uh, Invader's lyrics, but Invader won a lawsuit with the American lawyer, Louis Neiser. Yeah. There's a photographer in, uh, I believe in Massachusetts, who has uh, a website on rum and Coca-Cola, fantastic website. He's done more research on rum and Coca-Cola. It was up to the time, it was the most famous musical plagiarism case in the history of American recorded music. Mm. The Roman Coca-Cola case coming right during World War II. The song was banned from the radio and it was banned up until 57, maybe even after 57. And uh, because the original lyrics are drinking rum and Coca-Cola, going down to Point Kumina mother and daughter working for the Yankee dollar, huh. the Yankee dollar bill. And uh, uh, who is it? Uh, Invader wrote those lyrics and then Maury Amsterdam changed a few of them and published their version. In the lawsuit, and apparently the way it went, I believe, uh, is the 
past royalties presumably went to Invader, but the published rights to the song continued to go with Maury Amsterdam and his Confederates. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that song or something, people still say it was written by Maury Amsterdam mm -hmm. because they won that part of the lawsuit, but most of the money was already made and when it was popularized by the Andrews sisters and so forth. And uh, so that was really big. But getting back to Lovey's Band, uh, here's a recording of Lovey's Band okay, from cool. uh, Trinidad on a victor. It's called a paseo, which is a name given to Venezuela-influenced music from Trinidad. This is my most valuable record, really, money-wise. Money yeah. Is that is that like the only known copy? It's one of two known copies. Wow. I'll sell it to you right now for five grand. <laughs> <laughs>
Do you have any Dinwiddie color quartet? No. I don't know if this one's going to skip. It's a really bad pressing, but we can give it a try. Okay. I got this off of eBay, really cheap. Yeah, I know this uh, group. I really like these yeah. records. The guy that uh, researched them is Tim Brooks. Huh. Jubilee Shout, My Way is Cloudy by the Dinwiddie Color Quartet. She actually uh, sang in yeah. the group. Wow. In the group. Oh, the group's great. still singing. Yeah. That's great. So you were just saying that the, that was one of the early uh, vocal groups recorded. That's yeah, one of the early vocal groups recorded, and that was the research on that particular group. The main researcher is Tim Brooks. He wrote a wonderful book about it. I don't know the title. I got the uh, online version of it, uh, Sight and Sound or something like that. Uh, um, yeah, that sounds familiar, though I can't say I, I read it, certainly. But, but Tim did research on early acoustic black groups. Other really good researchers in this general area are, uh, uh, geez, I think that stroke has affected my <laughs> memory. Uh, uh, 
Everybody gets their Doug, Doug Siroff, who's in New York originally from sure. Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, Doug. And uh, Abbott, Lynn Abbott. I don't know Lynn, but I know Doug very well. And uh, they've done a lot of research on early black groups, particularly in the South. Hmm. They've written three or four books about it. This is one of the favorite songs I had when I was a kid in the 50s. Mexican song. Was take a al preso número nueve, ya lo van a confesar. Está rezando en la celda con el cura del penal Porque antes de amanecer la vida le han de quitar Porque mató a su mujer y a un amigo desleal Dice así al confesor los Ni me da miedo la eternidad Yo sé que allá en el cielo El ser supremo nos juzgará Voy a seguir sus pasos Voy a buscar los almas allá número nueve era un hombre muy cabal iba la noche del duelo muy contento a su jacar pero al mirar a su amor en brazos de su rival ardía en su pecho el rencor y no se pudo aguantar al sonar el clarín Ni me da miedo la eternidad Yo sé que allá en el cielo El ser supremo nos juzgará Voy a seguir sus pasos Voy a buscar los almas allá Ay, la, 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 la That was nice, not only great band, but great vocal on there, right? Yeah. That's uh, Los Quilotes Mexicanos with guitar. And what region of Mexico is that from? That's from the 
the Gulf Coast. Huh. Son was Deco. What year was that? Probably your late 40s, early 50s. It's nice. a New York label. This is 1909, I think. This next one. This is Montes and Manrique. I bought it from the dealer in Peru. Disco, Marta, Colombia. Told a, I, I remember you were telling me a story before. I think it was when one of your trips and when uh, um, you're traveling around Wade's with you, and you're talking about how, like the dynamics of even just driving around. Driving around was yeah. really difficult. Yeah. 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 I'd yeah. like to hear about that. Don Kent told me a lot of stories uh, about that as well. 
Oh, yeah, Thank he's you. been back in bad old days. <laughs> well, you know, his stories were more just that he was uh, looking for old records, you know, a white guy in uh, rural black. black areas, yeah. and how the sheriffs would start following him because they thought, you know, he was probably trying to register people to vote. Yeah, and, yeah. And he said That's the same thing they thought about us. Yeah, and he said a lot of people would, you'd hear stories about people disappearing, you know, who were yeah, doing that. Yeah. So he was very nervous. Yeah. So yeah, And I'd he's like not hear. a southerner. The no. Lomaxes were southerners, and they could, they knew the, the vocabulary, the sort of, not verbal, but Body gestures, the dynamics, right? Yeah. Dynamics. You got to communicate yeah. with the yeah. locals. Yeah. Yeah. Even though John wasn't that radical, but Alan was very radical. Yeah. He was a communist, in fact. So, what was some of your like your your first trips? When well, you the our first trip was with with Dave Bangiri and my friend from college, and we're still friends. And he's moved back to California. He worked for the Inter American Bank, I believe, for years. Married some nice lady from South America and uh, Dave and I travel around he's a year older than me he was the leader of our two-person group <laughs> sometimes we we'd go with other people other than each other but I traveled around down highway 66 from California to uh, all over the south from Chicago to New York all around and I went to Fisk University in Nashville which as it still is, was overwhelmingly a black school. They had one white student when I was there, other than those of us that came from largely white schools outside the South, and we were called exchange students, like we were going into another world, <laughs> which in a way it was. It was in the segregation era in the Jim Crow, toward the end of the Jim Crow era. And uh, so I recorded a fair amount in Nashville, we later recorded in Memphis, we recorded in Chicago. One or both of us in each of these places recorded uh, in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, in New Orleans, recorded the New Orleans clarinetist George Lewis in New Orleans, uh, an interview with him. Uh, and uh, I don't think, well, we recorded Wade Walton in Clarksdale, Mississippi, but we recorded him in New York too because we brought him to New York for Larry Cohn and uh, Kenny Goldstein. And we recorded it, Rudy Van Gelder, who just died recently, uh, his record studio in New Jersey, right. which was new then. It's where he recorded a lot of the jazz and blues greats there. And we recorded what was supposed to be two albums for Prestige Bluesville, but they only issued one of Wade Walton. Uh, and that was the trip we took uh, from, we were kicked out of Mississippi at that time for staying at his house and trying and going to his church. They arrested us coming out of church. And- uh, Incredible. Yeah. And uh, I had a picture of Blanche in my uh, wallet, but I was smart enough. This is then. your wife? My wife, right. then my girlfriend. Right. And uh, we've been married over 50 years now. And uh, so I tore up her picture and ate it. <laughs> oh my so gosh. they wouldn't see it because Incredible. if they saw it, I'd probably be in a river somewhere down there. And uh, they wanted us to leave Wade Walden along the roadside when they probably would have offed him. 
you know, but I talked about that in class off and on over the years. And, and I, what year was this? This was, this was 1960. This is 1960. Yeah. It, absolutely incredible. Yeah. And when you think about... And we could go back to that very quickly. In fact... Yeah. It's not going back for some of the communities, as you can tell by all the stuff. No, a lot of people's yeah. mentalities have not changed. changed it's yeah. never been more evident Maybe than half the with country. this election that we're That's right. looking at right now. That's and right. like you said, it's, it's not necessarily going back. It's just not hiding what's happening what's, as yeah. much. You know, it's peeking out of the corners. The saddest now. part of <laughs> yeah. the entire thing. So, uh, the three of us, Dave and Wade and myself, rode in my Volkswagen uh, Beetle from Memphis to New York and we couldn't stop anywhere along the line except one family was friends of Dave's who happened to be Jewish and they let us in. The lady let us into her house and through the front door which was like unheard of at the time. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that was in Middle Tennessee somewhere. And then uh, we went to New York and recorded the Bluesville album with Wade. And Wade is on uh, Jim O'Neill's Mississippi Blues Trail now. He's a barber, big right? Plaque. Wade was a barber, yeah, in Mississippi. And a good friend of Ike Turner, played with Ike Turner in his youth, and was influenced by Tony Holland, who I don't have that, I don't know if you have that no. CD put out by, was it Origin Records, or what is that record label that Johnny Parr started in or Austria? Origins, rather, Origins. Jazz Origins, Jazz Origin. No, it? it's the uh, document. I'm document. sorry, document. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Document label, and uh, he sold out his remainders because he's going just on digital files now. Right. And uh, so, uh, uh, we. Uh, I was talking about. Are you uh, talking about going Tony up to, to, to yeah. New York with New Wade? New York with Wade. And, and yeah. you told me before that when uh, I think you were at the, one of the studios, didn't you run into like a, a young Bob Dylan at one of the studios? I came close to seeing Bob Dylan. I didn't see him. Yeah, well, we went in. The studio or one something? of Blanche's friends recorded a folk LP. Yeah. Um, and she recorded with a group. Uh, her name is Angie Butler. Yeah. And she's still an actress in New York City, but she's from the South originally. Yeah. And she was a friend from Fisk, and she was in this trio, and she recorded an album in the Columbia, I think for John Hammond, I'm not sure. Yeah. But their group, Bob Gilgallum, one of the group, became an actor. And yeah. Had a series on TV for a while. But the other two guys, all of them were black. and. Uh, well, Angie still is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other two guys have passed, I think. But uh, uh, it was in the same studio where Dylan recorded, and Angie said, "Oh, Bobby Dylan was here just last week. You just missed him. He recorded. That was his first album, I think. Oh. That would have been 1960, probably. And you Maybe didn't really 61, have any interest in that 61. kind of." 
part no, of the I didn't, revival or anything. I didn't like that. care much about Dylan at all. I thought he was a newcomer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid me. Yeah. And uh, so I was in Korea when Dylan became fairly big in 63, and I was in language school in 62, and I wasn't listening to Dylan. Although Blanche and I went to a Dylan concert when I returned at Berkeley. I think that's when I returned. We went to a concert in Berkeley. And uh, I double dated once with Mimi Bias. Herb Case, another friend from school, went out with Mimi Bias. And I went out with, I don't remember who I went with. It was before Blanche and I hooked up. It was maybe 59 or something. We recorded Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall at a concert they gave at Pomona where I was in school. And uh, so we recorded an interview mostly with Ewan McCall. Peggy Seeger was there too. And uh, at any rate, we were talking about traveling around the country. Yeah. What drove you to do that? Uh, in the I just liked to travel because my parents had traveled a lot in my younger youth. And uh, I traveled, I'd been across country by the time I graduated from high school, I mean from college, I'd gone across country maybe 15 times or so, I don't know. Cross country meaning out Route 66 to either St. Louis or Chicago, hmm. and sometimes to New York. And I'd gone hitchhiked through Europe and done a lot of stuff. But I noticed I wasn't the only one. I noticed people doing that on, I'm big into uh, uh, Facebook. <laughs> and there's a guy, gosh, I don't want to mention him name, I can't think of his name, I don't want to botch it up, but he's been all over and recorded a lot of stuff, and he started busking and singing, he must be about my age, maybe a little bit younger, oh. and he traveled all over Europe and all over the place, and of course, Guy Carowin predates me by 10 or 15 years, he married a classmate of mine, he's one of the people responsible for popularizing We Shall Overcome, he and Pete Seeger. Um, they changed the lyrics around a little bit, oh. and uh, he is a white guy. He went to China, went through China, and lost his passport. And through the Soviet Union, lost his passport for that. And um, he just died last year, I think. Guy Carowin. Yeah, I knew him just slightly. I'm sure all the people he met, he would never have remembered me though. And uh, he's one of the people we met at Highlander Folk School. That's one of the places where Martin Luther King stayed and worked and so on. It was a place in Tennessee, Shawnee, near Shawnee, Tennessee, where they trained white and black farmers, farming techniques and stuff, so that they could be more independent from who's selling seed and who owns their land if they're sharecroppers and so on. And uh, they got shut down by the state of Miss by the state of uh, Tennessee a few months after we visited Highlander and they were called communists and whatnot and they were just good American socialists, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, uh, 
there's a postcard I gave to uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, that has a, a picture of Martin Luther King. It says, Martin Luther King at a communist work camp. It was taken at Highlander Folk School in some seminar yeah. that he had there. So I was really proud of going to Highlander. So are these and places where you sort of making connections? Yeah, to, we were to making like connections. Some of the old blues musicians. That's right. And Not like that. there, but we made. That was a place we could stay in Tennessee. Actually, I said we couldn't stay anywhere. That's one place we did stay. Yeah. Wade and Dave and I stayed there for several nights while Wade practiced his songs for his blues label uh, LP, and. Uh, at any rate, we traveled around, and uh, while I was at Fisk, I recorded street musicians, uh, James Campbell, and uh, a guy, he won an Emmy against, I think, both Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, and he wasn't all that great. He was a street musician. I made two session recordings with him. I may have been the first guy to record him. C.C. Uh, Clark was his name. Huh. Uh, and uh, he later, yeah, he won that. What is it you win? It's a Grammy. Yeah, Grammy. Grammy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I said yeah. So that's yeah. James Campbell is one of my. James Campbell's great. One of my favorite and he bands played, of all time. Well, I got nice interviews with him, and I have maybe, including his street band, I maybe have two hours of music or more of him. Really? Wow! Incredible. And uh, he. Uh, he loved playing at picnics. He especially liked playing for white picnics, which is a whole scene that people, the blues collectors, have not gotten into as much as they could. Well, I think picnics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what's his name? Played a lot of picnics. John Hurt. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And most of these musicians, white and black, played a lot of picnics. Yeah, interesting. It's uh, a famous picture of the... Baxter Brothers sitting like in a park mm, under a tree. Know. Looks like they might be playing in like yeah. a picnic. Could yeah. be. It's yeah. actually they're sitting under a sign that says whites only, so they're Yeah, and they're know, not <laughs> very heavy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, but James Campbell said he liked playing the white picnics more than the black ones. Mostly for economic reasons. They I'm had sure, more yeah. money. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. But uh, he played a lot of country music. I think uh, uh, Chris didn't like to record the country music at that time. I didn't either. I was. Uh, you You're know, really into the buskers and the, and yeah, the street performances? Yeah, and into the street performances. And in terms of blues, you know, we had this false idea that blues was something completely independent, and it wasn't at all. No, it of course. Was just, yeah. And that's only come out in recent decades, I think. Yeah. But I think now general. people have more of an understanding that, like, no matter where the musicians were from, that just like today they played a lot of different music. And, yeah. and they really had to if they were going to absolutely play, yeah. you know, whatever it was, picnics on the street. It yeah. doesn't matter. You had to be able to do all yeah. different styles. Yeah. And it was the recording companies that... You know, even though marketing was like a brand new thing, they immediately said, "You play this style, yeah. you play this style." And that's know. when American music is still divided into rock. And well, now it's even worse. And yeah, yeah. and uh, rap, 
and my grandson loves rap, but the rap he loves is not the rap I remember from the 90s. Well, he's, he's very young. different. He's, yeah. he's early 20s. What, he's 22? Yeah, you know, he's about 24 now. 24. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's very different. Yeah. But he likes the old stars, like the guy out in California who was killed or died. Oh, uh, Tupac. Tupac, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a big Tupac uh, yeah. fan. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, uh, this stuff is more continuous. And also, Rap has a big West Indian influence that a lot of my students were not aware of. The fact that it started in the South Bronx, you know, and uh, the Hmong, mostly black people of Hispanic and black American and West Indian descent. It's got a big root in Jamaican dub, I think, hmm. music from the and sound systems from the 50s. That's interesting, yeah. And I just recently got uh, a 78, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's South African. Um, I'm not sure when it's from, late 30s, maybe 40s. Hard to tell. It's that yellow label HMV. Uh-huh. You might be aware of There's a group called uh, Something Hobo Players. And it, it sounds like, mm-hmm. almost like uh, uh, that they would have been almost like the equivalent of a vaudeville act or something. You can tell. Yeah, they had a lot of vaudeville if they're... Are you, is this a group you think is Zulu or were they colored, Cape colored? I think it's Zulu. Because the Cape colored uh, did a lot of vaudeville like stuff. I'm not sure. But the interesting thing about it is, you know, that they go into a, a little vocal trio about halfway through the each side of the record. But the first half starts out with them obviously telling a story that I can't understand. But it's mm-hmm. so rhythmic and mm-hmm. so worked out, and it sounds like rap. Immediately when you yeah. hear it, you're like, oh, this is like well, an early version of rap music. One of my folklore, excuse me, idols, Roger Abrams, excuse me, wrote a book on rap, rapping and capping, which was where rap comes from, the title, the name. And it's a system, I've recorded a few of these, excuse me, I'm hiccuping now. That's okay. Alan Lomax. <laughs> recorded some of that stuff but Roger recorded a lot in Philadelphia and uh, it's basically obscene rhymes I've got Will Shade doing the Dirty Dirty Dozens it was called the Dozens or Rap and that's the that's the original that's the original American style yeah Yeah. and there's a lot of Calypso which is sort of speech rhymes and everybody has their version of that yeah I'm sure Yeah. yeah so yeah so we're we're about reaching the end of this show we can keep going if you're up for it sure i would love to ask you about will shade and other people like that, that you okay recorded. we can do some field recordings but yeah i feel like maybe we should save it but do you want to play another record or two to end this one yeah this is small island i like this because we lived on a small island oh cool and in trinidad the smaller islands were sort of um thought down about and the classic small island would have been uh, would have been uh, a place like Kariaku, hmm. which is part of Grenada, three miles by seven miles. No flower, no rice in the land. 
They come by the one, the two, and the three, eating our food and they leaving our tongue. We so small island, go back where you really come from. of all. Here they talk, me not going back at all. Yes, they land in Trinidad in a fishing boat. Now they wear any feather coats. So small island, go back where you really come from. They will tell you that I'm a Trinidadian. They improve on their speech and they speak incorrectly, and they argue in education. So small island, go back where you really come from. Now they are making their name in Port of Spain. They will send for their brother, their aunt and their sister, their cousins, and also their grandmother. This song is nice. is uh, interesting because it's talking about these small islanders. Huh. And he's, at the beginning he says, no rice, no peas in the land. Huh. It's eaten up by all those small island people. Ah, um, they come by the ones and the twos and the threes. And they leave in us without food, you know, empty. Yeah, yeah. Small island. Go back where you really come from. It's kind of a, the Donald Trump song. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't believe that we live in a country that may elect Donald Trump. Oh, God, no. But I was going to vote for Stein, but and I was a Bernie Sanders. Yes, I was a strong Bernie Sanders supporter myself. So, so this Calypso seems to be our thing here, so this might have a skip in it. Okay. This is Sam Manny. Out of me. Out of me? 
Out of me, you wouldn't get no fur coat. Out of me, out of me, out of me, you wouldn't wear no diamond ring. Out of me, look here, Miss American girl, you wouldn't wear no fur coat. Out of me, go away, Miss American girl, you wouldn't wear no diamond ring. Out of me, I get up in the morning, half past eight, get on the job five minutes late. Brass says you don't want me no more. The cold night wind just begin to blow. Now it ain't no joke. When I got no overcoat, now my plane done got me broke. Take my red money, try to get quick. Landlord call me a hell of a fix. Out of me, out of me, you wouldn't wear no fur coat. Out of me, out of me, out of me, you wouldn't wear no diamond ring. Out of me. Okay, Don, well, that is going to conclude this uh, episode. Thanks so much for doing it. Okay. Uh, well, we heard some fantastic music, and uh, I know myself, I'm going to go back and listen to it again.
As for the audience, so long for a while. We love That's you. That's all the songs for a while. We love you. We love your audience. Thanks for tuning in to John's old time radio show. Ooh, that was nice. Please join us next time, where John will chastise you, call you stupid, and say fuck off. Thank you and good night. Well, That's I'm, great. I'm great. I'm going to use that in every Fun. show. Every show is going to end That's with that. That's a career she could have had.